Hi, I'm Sergio. And I'm Alex. And this is the IPHO Podcast. Each episode, we'll be hosting professionals with diverse backgrounds from across the industry. We have two goals, to bring you timely, relevant insights from across the healthcare landscape and information that can help support your professional growth. What non-traditional career opportunities exist for pharmacists, and how can I stand out from other candidates? How is COVID impacting the way we develop medications and support patients? What social inequalities exist within the biopharmaceutical industry, and what are companies doing about it? So whether you're a pharmacy student interested in learning more about fellowships or in pursuing a direct career in industry, a current or former fellow trying to figure out your next step, or just interested in a distraction from your workout, we've got you covered. And remember, the views and opinions we and our guests express on this show are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Welcome to episode six of the IPHO podcast. I'm joined today by Alexi um, because Alex is on vacation. And so we didn't want to burden him with podcast recording while he's enjoying some quality time with his family. So welcome to the show, Alexi. Thank you for having me. Before uh, we get to uh, a chat with Alexi, I just want to remind everybody of our last episode, which was with um, Nick James and Sona Patel. Nick is the UCB um, IPHO Global Regulatory Affairs Fellow, and Sona is the Rev Health um, slash IPHO Pharmaceutical Advertising Fellow. And they also serve as our co-chiefs for the National Fellows Council. So we had them on the last episode, and they were able to tell us a little bit about their journey to the fellowship program, which was really interesting, and some of what they're looking to accomplish with the NFC this year. So if you hadn't have a haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, uh, please go back and, and give that a listen. But today, like I said, we've got Alexi on the show. And Alexi's a recent grad of uh, Wilkes University in Pennsylvania with his PharmD, and he's about to begin his fellowship as the Global Patient Safety Fellow with UCB in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's also now a member of the IPHO National Fellows Council and will be focusing on expanding this podcast. And what the heck does that mean? Yeah, so uh, I guess the idea is uh, currently the IPHO podcast, obviously it's been very successful up to this point. Um, some feedback that I had for it as a listener myself before I became a fellow is that I would have loved to just have more episodes because currently it's about one episode a month and a lot of podcasts, if you're a big podcast fan like I am, a lot of podcasts are weekly or even daily, some of them. Um, so I thought once a month, I thought we could improve on that, you know, so I saw an opportunity there and I reached out to you guys and I said, you know, what do you think if I did an episode a month and we could stagger the episodes, we could have alternating, you know, every two week episodes. I think a lot of listeners would enjoy that. Um, and then I think I also have another perspective to offer with the podcast because uh, you and Alex have been in the industry for a while. Now you have a lot of experience, um, but IPHO a lot of the listeners are students in pharmacy school and at myself as a listener, when I was a student in pharmacy school, I wanted to kind of hear about, you know, the mid-year process and like getting a mentor in the industry when you don't have one and, and tips and tricks like that, um, that I managed to do myself and helped me out a lot. And I think, uh, there's a lot of conversations that can be had that will hopefully appeal to pharmacy students, current fellows, uh, and generally just industry professionals that are early on in their career. Totally. And this came at like, the perfect time because Alex and I were having this conversation about uh, how the show's been going and how we 
we really wish we could be doing episodes more frequently, but it's just hard with our, with our day jobs and, you know, wanting to try to get on some more students and fellows and, and put out some more content geared to, geared to our audience. Um, so it was really the perfect time. It was the, uh, the perfect time to reach out. And I think we, we sort of made this happen within the course of about a month or so um, from our initial discussion, which is, uh, which is really cool. So, Keep an eye out for Alexi's show starting up and, and getting live um, in the July timeframe is I think what we're aiming for. Yeah, something around then. My fellowship technically starts July 1st. So depending on uh, when your and Alex's next episode is, we'll kind of go from there. So it should be about every two weeks. And so if you're interested in potentially coming on that show, feel free to uh, to reach out. We'll see who, uh, who we'll have for our special first show guest on, uh, on Alexi's show. So, uh, so we're really looking forward to that. The, the other thing that we've been looking to do a little bit more of with Alex and I, we haven't had a chance over our first five episodes, was to talk about things that are in the news, interesting, you know, things that other folks might be um, not as aware of. Maybe you've heard about a, a particular story in passing, but you don't really know all the details. Um, so to provide you a little bit more current events and things like that. Um, and so we had reached out and, and asked uh, for a couple of topics that you thought might be relevant. So what was uh, maybe one of those topics that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so one of those topics is something that is uh, very new in the news, um, and it's the FDA's decision to approve uh, new treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And what Um, the heck is that drug called? I can't even pronounce it. Yeah, me either. So I would say Aduhelm. Aduhelm is the brand name, and then Aducanumab would be the generic name. Uh, And it was just recently approved to treat patients with Alzheimer's disease using the accelerated approval pathway uh, by the FDA. And it's basically gotten a lot of feedback, both positive and negative, probably more negative than positive. Um, But that's what we're going to talk about. So that's interesting. And I I was looking up what this what this drug is exactly. Um, And of course, being a dutiful citizen of the industry pulled up the prescribing information. And the mechanism of action is described as a human immunoglobulin gamma-1 monoclonal antibody directed against aggregated soluble and insoluble forms of amyloid beta. The accumulation of amyloid beta plaques in the brain is a defining pathophysiological feature of Alzheimer's disease. Aduhelm reduces amyloid beta plaques as evaluated in studies 1, 2, and 3. So that's interesting. It's targeting the amyloid beta plaques. And I, I do wonder, has that been correlated with clinical efficacy? Yeah, so that is apparently the big discussion. Um, and that's why a lot of negative feedback has come in. Uh, so basically, I, I've also looked into a couple different articles having to do with this approval. And um, like you said, the reduction in plaques is kind of what they're looking at. Those amyloid plaques are a hallmark finding in the brains of patients with Alzheimer's. And the idea is it's expected to lead to a reduction in the clinical decline of dementia related to Alzheimer's. Um, But from basically all of the research that I've looked at, uh, basically all anti-amyloid beta plaque therapies in Alzheimer's disease and related disorders have proven negative in the past. I actually found one article from Nature Reviews Neurology, and I have it pulled up right here. And they looked at about 28 different studies between 2002 and 2018, and every single one of them uh, failed. And most of those failures were due to either toxicity or lack of efficacy or both. 
Um, so that's really the argument against this approval that a lot of uh, a lot of people, physicians, patients, um, different organizations have been criticizing. Um, and then the FDA recently came back with a couple statements, kind of defending um, their approval and saying that they they went through the process the same way they would any other medication. They combed over all the data. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of conflicting data, but they're basically saying that they believe that the benefits of the medication will outweigh will outweigh the risks of it. So that's kind of the argument that's unfolding right now. Yeah, the advisory committee did not seem pleased with this whole uh, decision. I'm quoting from the New York Times here. Um, the advisory committee, along with an independent think tank and several prominent experts, including some Alzheimer's doctors who worked on the aducanumab clinical trials, said the evidence raised significant doubts about whether the drug is effective. They also said that even if it could slow cognitive decline in some patients, the benefits suggested by the evidence would be so slight that it would not outweigh the risk of swelling or bleeding in the brain that the drug caused in the trials. So that's a pretty strong statement coming from an advisory committee. And I know you're you know, just going to be starting your your fellowship, so you probably haven't had a chance to, to go through the advisory committee process, but um, that's a a pretty strong statement coming from them. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I haven't had much experience, but I did have an internship at Pfizer a couple of years ago, and I was working on Prevnar 13, one of their vaccines. So I actually got to sit in on the ACIP uh, meeting on that major decision with Prevnar 13 a couple of years ago, um, basically changing the recommendations for for that vaccine. And Definitely those meetings, everyone is very technical. Everybody's very careful about what they say. So I, I agree this is a very strong statement coming from them. Uh, and there's a lot of work that, that goes into these, um, you know, both on the part of FDA, by, by industry, you know, by other organizations that participate, by the advisory committee members themselves. And so in, in a way, this is like the worst possible outcome for everybody involved. It's it's not good for patients. It's not good for the FDA, you know, for their reputation. It's not good for the advisory committee themselves. And, you know, there, there are several members of the advisory committee that have resigned in protest over this. We haven't even gotten to that part of it. Um, it's it's bad for the manufacturer of the product. It's it's a lose, lose, lose all around, you know, for, for all the time and effort that, that went into this. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of those um, advisory members that resigned. So right here, I have an article from the Washington Post. And as of right now of this recording, it says that three members of the advisory board quit after the FDA approved the drug, saying the FDA did not listen to their advice. One of them, Aaron Kesselheim, a Harvard medical school professor, said the approval was the, quote, worst drug approval decision, end quote, in recent history. Uh, So that is definitely a a very strong statement uh, coming from uh, arguably a a world-renowned uh, physician. Uh, well, he's a medical school professor. I'm assuming he's a physician, but he might not be. But still, he's one of the advisory members from the FDA. He quit. Two of his other colleagues quit. And there's a lot of unhappy yeah. people. Yeah. And I mean, they go on in, in the letter that they signed. They say that after my experience on this advisory committee for both uh, Atel Plurson and now the Adekanumab discussions, it's clear to me that FDA is not presently capable of adequately integrating the committee's scientific recommendations into its approval decisions. Again, that's a, a, a real shot across the bow coming from you know several advisory committee members to the FDA, and I'm, I'm sure it raised some eyebrows down at uh, down at FDA. Yeah, definitely. And 
at the same time, with all of this controversy about whether the drug will actually be effective or not, um, something that I think is being overshadowed is the fact that the drug has a list price of $56,000 a year per patient. Um, so even wow. even if it was proven that it did work, that there's still a lot of hurdles that need to be uh, hopped over in order to get this drug actually in the hands of patients, as in figuring out how it's going to be paid for. Um, and obviously, before you figure out how it's going to be paid for, we kind of need to know how effective it's going to be. So I think there's a, a lot in store that we still need to see unfold. Yeah, there's kind of two interesting, you know, tracks or follow up stories that I think are going to emerge from this. One is obviously the future of, of Aduhelm and, you know, the degree to which it's adopted by physicians and patients and any additional evidence is generated over time over the life cycle of, of that product. But then separately, it'll be interesting to see how FDA responds to this um, sort of mutiny on the part of the advisory committee. And, um, you know, these three members who, who resigned in their letter, um, they include, you know, some suggestions about what the FDA needs to do in the future. You know, they, they suggest that in the future reforms in these areas could allow outside experts to be better able to provide meaningful input into the FDA approval process. Um, they, uh, they suggest that uh, FDA takes a very close look about how drug candidates are selected for ADCOM review, which questions are put to the committee and how those questions are worded and how anecdotal patient experience with drugs is presented to the committee. So although it was a very sternly worded letter, um, there was some very specific advice that they provided and, and hopefully the FDA takes that to heart and can work together with, uh, with the remaining members of the advisory committee to, uh, to improve its, uh, its processes. Yeah, and I think it's important to definitely kind of take a look at the FDA side, which you just did there a little bit. Um, and this is straight from the FDA statement from the day that they approved uh, the medication. And this is kind of their argument for what the data shows. So this is straight from their statement. Uh, the FDA basically said that the late stage development program for Aduhelm consisted of two phase three clinical trials. One study met the primary endpoint showing a reduction in clinical de decline. The second trial did not meet the primary endpoint. But in all studies that were evaluated, Aduhelm consistently and very convincingly reduced the level of amyloid plaques in the brain in a dose and time-dependent fashion. It is expected that the reduction in amyloid plaque will result in a reduction in clinical de decline. So that statement right there is basically their argument as to why they approved it, even though there is conflicting data, like we said, they're kind of sticking to that um, idea that the reduction in amyloid plaque will result in a reduction in clinical de decline. And again, that's kind of the argument coming from everybody else. It seems like the data in the past and all the data we really have available to us right now shows that that's not the case, but the FDA kind of thinks otherwise. And I think for veterans of, of the industry, you know, we, we've seen this play out before where surrogate endpoints, end which were thought to be clinically meaningful and, and correlate with, with clinical outcomes, were, were later found not to, in fact. And there's some pretty you know, prominent examples of that occurring over the years. And so um, for those who've been around quite a while, it was a bit of a head scratcher um, to see what, what appeared to be a different standard applied um, for this approval um, as opposed to previous approvals. But no doubt it'll be an interesting area for us to keep an eye on over time. So what was the other thing you wanted to talk about? Yeah. So the other thing was this interesting article that we 
that I was looking at uh, not too long ago, and it was basically having to do with, I believe it was Bayer that was using Amazon Alexa advertisements to basically sell consumers their over-the-counter medications. Um, and, you know, you and I had talked about this a little bit ourselves, and it kind of reminded us of those push buttons that you can get for various products. So I, I remember one, I, I don't remember what brand it was, but it might have been like Dove Soap or Dawn or something like that. Um, and when you run out, you push a button and it automatically reorders for you. And this is kind of the next evolution of that, where you can really just ask whatever smart assistant you have laying around your house. I don't need to go. I don't need to go to the pharmacy down the street. I can literally just talk to the uh, to the Google Puck or the the Amazon uh, voice assistant. Yeah, that's basically the idea. And I don't know. You know, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, I would assume there's regulatory requirements on having to do that like very carefully but again it seems like they're sticking to over the counters right now um but who knows what the evolution will be with prescription products which of course interestingly you know the otc products don't have the same safety balancing requirements that that pharma ads do so it's not a surprise to see this perhaps as the as the first test case of uh, advertisements or you know directly buying products using a voice assistant because I, I, it does seem like it will be um, much trickier for um, a pharma company to implement this obviously with the requirement to get a prescription and um, the actual filling of, uh, of the prescription but it is an interesting test case it looks like they um, are actually piloting this in the UK initially it will be interesting I guess to see if this makes it over to the US yeah, it definitely will be interesting. Um, a lot of people nowadays are switching over to mail order. Um, and this is kind of like the next evolution of mail order in a way as well. You can get your prescription drugs delivered to your door. Now you can order your over-the-counter medications just by telling your device what you want. That shows up at your door. Um, so it kind of makes you wonder what is the future of uh, community and retail pharmacies when everything you need, can you can just speak it into existence basically. Yeah, and with you know some of these delivery times now, they can you know get things to you like within a day or two, which is um, you know pretty impressive. It, it'll be tough to envision it replacing you know some you know impulse products that you need. You know, you have a sick kid and you need to run out and get some Tylenol or something. Um, but certainly, it, it seems to be eating into the uh, to the traditional brick and mortar um, retailers in this space. So, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves and. You know, the other thing that's, you know, sort of adjacent to the OTC market are services like um, Roman. Um, you know, these are for those, you know, listeners who may not be aware. Um, Want to give a quick description of what those are? Yeah. So Roman is uh, basically uh, an online, I guess it would be considered a pharmacy. So if you if you go to getroman.com, hashtag not sponsored, it basically is digital. It's a digital health clinic for men and they have different branches of their company. So they have uh, female products. They have products for, um, so for, for men, they have sexual health products. You can see they have products for erectile dysfunction, cold sores, genital herpes. You can go to hair and skin products. So things like eczema, dandruff. And basically you go on this website and you basically get like a free online visit and then they can kind of personalize medications for you. Um, and you can basically write you a script, right? Like, yeah. you know, people, companies have been trying for many years um, to switch things for erectile dysfunction um, and for some of these other conditions. And in a way that sort of, 
short circuits it because you know you can go do one of these telehealth visits get the script written remotely and then they also fulfill the order for you and you get the stuff in the mail um and so in a way it's sort of eating into the traditional otc market um you know the rx to otc switch market um in a way so it's kind of interesting and, it, and that came to mind when i was looking at this news story is you know perhaps that's the next area where where this could expand it's an evolution of the way that um, some of the large pharmaceutical company players are looking at uh, the advertising and promotional market it'll be interesting to see what other brands might hop onto this trend you know you can imagine other otc companies maybe you know joining pretty quickly um, if they demonstrate some success here um, it also makes you wonder you know whether these companies could be selling directly you know i'm sure you know having this be a partnership with Alexa, you know, and Amazon, you know, is obviously seems a bit logical because the, the order can then be fulfilled by Amazon. But it'd be interesting to see if uh, if any companies want to cut out the middleman in a way and, and sell directly using these voice assistants, which seems plausible. I mean, I'm not a, a technical developer, but it seems like it could be doable. Yeah, not only plausible, but seems likely. Um, I think it would be pretty smart for some companies such as Roman or any, any other uh, companies that are coming out that are trying to do something like this to kind of get in early and take over this market because it really is, you know, you get licensed healthcare professionals, you get a personalized treatment. And like you said, they even fulfill the order for you. So it's kind of a one-stop shop um, and you can get basically whatever you want there. And again, partnering up with these voice assistants, it, it honestly couldn't get any easier and that would be very hard to compete with. And what they're calling these is quote, actionable audio ads, which is, you know, obviously the first that I've ever heard of this, but, um, you know, maybe for our listeners out there, if you, if you do happen to hear this term, now you, uh, you heard it here first, um, and you know, you might know uh, what we're referring to here. Um, and actually the, the article includes a little bit of data on some of the initial results of this trial that they were running in the UK. Um, it says that the trial is winding down, but the initial results are promising. Among people who engaged with the ad, 23% purchased um, the product that they were advertising and 41% asked for more information, uh, according to Bayer's preliminary data, which seems pretty high, actually. You know, when you think about it, I, if I'm listening to, you know, one of the streaming music services and an ad comes on, I'm, I'm just, you know, waiting to, to skip through it. Basically, I, I almost never engage with, with any advertisements over my voice assistant. And so um, 41% seems like a pretty high number. Yeah, definitely. Uh, another interesting thing that I could see this kind of a way that I can see this playing out is um, with devices like these voice assistants already have so much of your information. Um, so when you go to order something like they're going to use, they already have your payment information. You don't need to enter any of that. All of that's automatic. Um, it kind of just goes back to like, it, it just couldn't be any easier. And then in this article, um, the device maker Dexcom, for example, has a SugarMate skill that tracks glucose readings from a Dexcom continuous glucose monitor. So not only can you order your medications, you can have your medical devices paired to these voice assistants and ask those voice assistants to read you back your data. Um, so that's also really interesting. So in, you have a continuous glucose monitor, for example, you can say, you know, Alexa, what was my blood sugar reading two hours ago? And it'll tell you. That actually seems like it has some amazing potential in, in certain therapeutic areas. And I mean, diabetes is such a, a great example, you know, where compliance is, is so important and the technology itself lends itself to, to solving that. 
it also seems like a little bit of a slippery slope, like some of the privacy concerns, you know, it's obviously it's sitting in your house, it could be listening to everything that you're doing. I mean, could they start providing recommendations, you know, based on other personal data that it may have access to, you know, your phone and your contacts and your emails and, you know, all the discussions that are happening in your house. I mean, it, you know, might be suggesting uh, Advil or something if there's been a lot of yelling in the house, if my toddler's been running around the house screaming and all of a sudden an, an Advil ad comes up or something, I, you know, that might be creepy to, to some folks. And so you wonder where the line might be on some of these privacy considerations. Obviously, they've probably had to opt in in this Dexcom example and, you know, grant consent and access. But for some of these others, like the uh, the Bayer ad, I don't think that they've, they were necessarily asking for consent until it was time for the uh, for the purchase. Yeah, definitely. And kind of what you just said kind of got my, my mind stirring a little bit. So a, a lot of HIPAA concerns, like you mentioned, uh, that's, I think, more of a technical challenge in terms of building it to be HIPAA compliant. Um, obviously, everything's HIPAA compliant basically nowadays. So I'm sure they've thought that through. Um, but when you kind of mentioned like recommending different OTCs for a patient, that's scary because if that patient like has an NSAID allergy, but that information is not given to the voice assistant. You don't have that on your on your phone or anything. And then they recommend you a product. You order that product, take that product, and then you have a negative outcome. Then that is, there's a lot of liability involved in that. Including in like the women's health space. I remember there was um, an ad or a, a news story um, several years ago about, I think it might've been one of these large retailers like Target or TJ Maxx or somebody, but they were you know, basically able to aggregate a number of different um, customer data sources. And they were able to predict with relatively high confidence when somebody was pregnant. And all of a sudden, you know, women were receiving like advertisements and coupons in the mail for like strollers and baby bottles and stuff like that. And it pretty quickly creeped folks out because although it might have been right in some cases, that's creepy. It also was probably wrong in some cases. And that's also kind of weird to have, you know, a lot of pregnancy related ads and things showing up. And so um, you could envision a similar, you know, slippery slope where, you know, your Alexa assumes that you're uh, pregnant or something, or your your partner spouse is pregnant. Um, and all of a sudden is starting to offer you up, uh, you know, pregnancy related products or something, you know, I have, we have I have a toddler at home, you know, if he runs around the house saying, you know, all manner of, of nonsense, who knows what kind of product recommendations I could get in response to that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of arguments against having these types of ads, <laughs> because there's a lot that can go wrong. So I mean, if it if it is implemented further, I, I would just say they need to be very, very careful. And I think we can all agree on that. But think about those engagement numbers. 41% asked for more information. So you could see why companies would be totally jazzed about this. But I think there are um, admittedly some some definite privacy and you know HIPAA type considerations. So for any teams that might be you know working on this, um, think through uh, the pros and cons. So anyway, I, I thought that was some you know two really interesting topics that we had a chance to talk about. Tonight, um, I'm hoping that we can get a chance to do a little bit more of this. You know, obviously, Alex and I are still going to be um, doing our show, and you're going to be off and running doing your show. But it'd be great to uh, to come and visit you sometime, and have you come and visit us, and, and that sort of thing. So, really looking forward to to seeing you get your your show up and running. Awesome! Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that'll do it for this episode. We appreciate you spending your time with us. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and give us a rating. 
You can also visit us on the IPHO website to provide feedback and learn how to get involved. Please do it because we need your help. Until next time, take care and stay safe.